Navigating the travel world doesn't have to be complicated. Whether you want to hack your points and miles, figure out where to travel next, or you just need advice on an ethical dilemma. I'm Aislinn Green, host of Unpacked by Afar. And in the brand new season, we are unpacking the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry, one conversation at a time. Topics like the sexiness of travel insurance and the perils of quote-unquote bad tourism, and even the secrets to flying with children and not losing your mind in the process. Listen to Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Well, isn't this exciting? A feed drop for something that we've been working on for, for quite some time. Yeah, that's true. We've been uh, both working on a podcast about Buffy St. Marie. So it's mm-hmm. a five-episode series that looks at the life, music, and art of Cree legendary singer-songwriter Buffy St. Marie. Hopefully you'll be surprised. I was surprised by a lot of things that we learned. What is one thing that surprised you about uh, Buffy when you met her in person? Um, I think, you know, the amount of energy she had, the amount of generosity Mm -hmm. she had, you know, she Mm -hmm. really did. um, She gave us a ton of time. I got to sit down and chat with her in person. And it was really, you know, she's just so generous. And I think, you know, after 60 years of being in the business, you know, she doesn't have to be that way. Uh, But she really Mm -hmm. was. She was so generous with her time. Mm-hmm. Yes. And very flexible. What people yes. <laughs> won't see in the podcast, because it's not a visual medium, is that she had her legs like slung over the side of a chair. I was fascinated at like her, just her vitality. Mm-hmm. It's very inspiring. So here's the first episode of Buffy, a five part series hosted by me about the life and legacy of Buffy St. Marie. Check it out. Hope you like it. Before we begin, I want to let you know that this episode contains difficult subject matter and references to abuse. Please take care. It's February, 1941. Some say it was the 20th, but no one knows for sure. A baby girl is born in the Capel Valley, Saskatchewan, most likely on the Cree Piapot Reserve. Again, we can't be sure, but we can guess it was cold. For reasons unknown, this baby girl was sent far, far away from the prairies, all the way to Massachusetts, just north of Boston, to live with an adoptive family. They named the little girl Beverly. Beverly St. Marie. Ladies and gentlemen, the incomparable Buffy St. Marie. Buffy St. Marie. Buffy St. Marie is a Cree Indian and a folk singer, or as one critic has called her, a folk poet. No, I, I don't think of myself as a folk singer or an ethnic singer or, or any of those things. I just sing what I have to sing, and people seem to like it, and I don't think it's necessary to have a word for it. I don't think you can find one artist today in our community that wouldn't say that Buffy St. Marie inspired them in some kind of way. She's kind of everything. Buffy's voice is Buffy's voice. It cuts right through and it will not be denied. You know, Canada doesn't have any honor when it comes to Indian people. And if we keep counting on Canadian honor, we're going to keep getting screwed. And so we're just going to take care of things ourselves now. And if Canadian people want to help, we'll say thank you. And if they don't, we'll do it anyway.
For me, Buffy's always just been there, like air. But outside of Indigenous country, it's different. I'm Phelan Johnson. I'm Mohawk and Tuscarora from Six Nations. I'm an Indigenous writer, a producer, and a host. And maybe you're someone like me, who has always known who Buffy St. Marie is. Or maybe you're wondering who the heck she is. In Indigenous country, Buffy is it. She is the musician, the artist. I've even heard her called the queen, which is complicated when you think about colonization, but you get the idea. In short, we Indigenous people think of Buffy as the most celebrated Indigenous musician ever. Full stop. But even that isn't enough to be a household name. And I've been thinking about that a lot. If one of our most accomplished artists isn't visible, what hope is there for the rest of us? My country, tis of thy people, you A line from one of her songs has been running through my head lately. It's from My Country, Tis of Thy People, You Are Dying. And the line goes like this. Now that your big eyes are finally opened. That's it. That's the line. Now that your big eyes are finally opened. As an Indigenous person, I have felt this way a lot. There are like these waves. Waves when more people have their eyes open to Indigenous rights, to our history, our treaties, our land, to our lives being worthy of caring about. And then the moment slips away. And then we are gone again. And we wait until your big eyes open again. Indigenous people and our stories have been in the news a lot lately, and for the most part, it's not been good news. I often feel cynical about moments like the one we're in. Moments when more non-Indigenous people seem to be listening, when more people seem to care about treaty rights, about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, about the remains of Indigenous children at residential school sites across North America. All this talk of reconciliation. I've been watching these moments fly by me my entire life. Oka, Ipperwash, Burnt Church, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I can't identify this moment, because how is it any different from the rest? For her entire life and career, Buffy has been pushing back against erasure, against colonization, racism, and sexism. I want to know how she does it, how she stands up, holds her ground, and keeps going. I'm Phelan Johnson, and this is Buffy. Over the next five episodes, I'm going to take you on an intimate journey through the life of Buffy St. Marie. We'll dive into the CBC's mountain of Buffy archives and hear Buffy's story in her own words from new conversations we've recorded with her. We'll pass through Greenwich Village and the Vietnam War, the reoccupation of Alcatraz, the Academy Awards. We'll head to Piapot, First Nation, and even Sesame Street. But this story starts on a frozen lake in Massachusetts. I loved skating. I really wanted to be a skater or a dancer, but I couldn't afford lessons. 
But after school in the wintertime, I mean, I would come home, I'd dump my books, I'd, I'd, I'd grab my skates, I'd run down the hill, I'd cross the railroad tracks, I'd cross the baseball field, and there I'd be at the shore of the lake. And I'd put my loafers, you know, by the side of the lake. It was called Lake Quanapowit, and uh, it was a nice little lake. I had Tchaikovsky playing in my head. I was skating to Swan Lake. I was skating to the Nutcracker Suite. I'd be out just sailing around, you know, practicing my waltz jumps and my three turns and and uh, my backward skating and just... I had a symphony in my head. Buffy grew up with her adoptive family on the east coast of the United States, just outside of Boston. I was really lucky as a child in one way, in that uh, I had a lot of time in the woods, and I had a mother who was real hip so far as, um, you know, not forcing churches and things on me. I was a, a woods kind of person. I had woods behind my house, and I spent summers really in the forest with tents and trailers and just with my family. Buffy's dad worked as a mechanic. He also fished and hunted. He'd come home with ducks, pheasants, and sometimes deer. Her mom was a copy editor for newspapers and publishing companies. Buffy had an older brother and a younger sister. There were always pets in the home, a cat, a dog, and lots of rabbits. It was a full house. But Buffy was often alone. I was very shy. I was a very shy kid and somewhat sad. I've always had a real deep spiritual hunger. Money was sometimes tight for the St. Marie's. They all lived in a small house in a small town in Wakefield, Massachusetts. So I'm wondering, um, in terms of how life was in Massachusetts, you know, growing up, Did you feel like you fit in there? No, I didn't feel like I fit in. But we shouldn't look back on it with today's hindsight, because now we know my story. Hello? Hey, Janice, it's Phelan. Hi, Phelan, how are you? Good, how are you? Oh, pretty good. This is Janice Palumbo, a childhood friend of Buffy's. I met Buffy in the first grade. We were just friends from the very beginning. But Buffy wasn't Buffy in those days. No, she was Beverly. She was Beverly. Bevy St. Marie. (laughs) She was Bevy, B-E-V-V-Y, and I was Janny, J-A-N-N-Y. And so when you and Buffy were growing up, what kinds of things did you get up to? Oh, all kinds of things. We used to go... um, ice skating. We were in Girl Scouts together. We were in the Glee Club together in school. We went to dancing school together. We liked the same boys. (laughs) In the summer, we uh, went horseback riding. There was um, a place called McKenzie's in Wakefield, and we walked everywhere. Wakefield was a pretty town. It still is a pretty town. Before yuppies were yuppies, if you know what I'm talking about, it was split. One part on one side of the tracks 
was central Wakefield with the stores and the churches and buildings. It was very pretty. Just beyond that was the Italian section, where we lived on the other side of the tracks, and Buffy lived on a hill. And at the higher you got up that hill, the more expensive houses were. And we were sort of right at the low part. People from the top part of town looked down on their nose on the people from the bottom. We were not good enough for them. I have mixed feelings about Wakefield. It was, it was a strange, snooty kind of a town. It was totally white except for one family. So white that Buffy calls it Javix, USA. I was made aware of the fact that I was an Indian and that I was different from other children and that that could be good or that might not be so good depending upon the way I handle it. And I didn't handle it very well for a long time. When I was in uh, high school, for instance, I tried to be just like all the other girls. I cut my hair short, and I, when they bleached their hair, I tried to bleach my hair. And I, you know, wore their lipstick, and I tried to dress like them, and I was just a person who never fit into that, and I was miserable. I was born in Saskatchewan to um, parents that I never knew. I was um, orphaned or something. Canada has a long history of removing Indigenous kids from their families. First, through Indian residential schools, then through the child welfare system. And we're still living in this. The circumstances surrounding Buffy's adoption and adoptions like hers were often murky. Records were lost, missing, or withheld. But we do know that as a baby, Buffy was sent over 2,000 miles away, from Saskatchewan to Massachusetts. Her adoptive parents had lost a baby, and Buffy was there to help fill that void. From the outside, the couple looked white, but Buffy's mom talked about being Indigenous, about being from the Mi'kmaq Nation. She and her family were very proud that they were part what they called Mi'kmaq. <laughs> Mi'kmaq is an anglicized pronunciation of her mother's nation. Now we say Mi'kmaq, but back in the day, Mi'kmaq was used pretty regularly. And I, I should also let you know, in this podcast, we're going to use the word Indian, Buffy uses it, and many First Nations folks do when we talk to each other. Not all, but some. Anyways, you shouldn't use it unless you are. You get it. She would tell me, yeah, we're part Mi'kmaq, Mi'kmaq, but um, she told me that they didn't know anything about it. So when I grew up, if I wanted to know, I could go find out for myself, which was the best thing that they could have said about me. It's hard to grow up as a First Nations person. I mean, it's great in a lot of ways. I'm not going to lie. We're pretty awesome. But representations of us, even today, accurate representations of us are too few. Sure, it's getting better, and that's great. But I cringe when I think about what Buffy would have been exposed to as a kid. If you're an Indian growing up in the time and the place where I grew up, you didn't hear about Indians. Indians were just passed over. In history books, Indians were uh, ridiculed. In cartoons, uh, Indians were caricatures, were a thing of the past. Indians were dead, stuffed in museums, and leave it be, unless you're going to make it uh, a novelty of entertainment value. My mother let me know that that's not the way it was. She just let me know that the history books were uh, not necessarily true. The 50s, when Buffy was growing up, were part of what's known as the Golden Age of the Western. Think John Wayne, 
cowboys and Indians, frontiersmen, the Wild West. If you went to a movie theater, you'd be hard-pressed not to see an indigenous person getting shot off a horse. Or you could turn on the TV and see these stereotypes aimed right at kids, like in this episode of Howdy Doody. You white man named Bob Smith? That's right, Indian. Yes, come on. I want you to meet my friend here. This is Flubadub. Flubadub, this is Mr. Indian. How? How what? How Flubadub. For me, there's something oddly validating about this stuff. These terrible westerns and racist shows. It's like having the racism receipts. A thing I can point to and say, see? This is what we've had to overcome. What we are still trying to overcome. We are still trying to reclaim our humanity from damaging stuff like this. And that's why I think it's so lucky that Buffy had her mom to tell her to question things. Even if her mom didn't have the answers about Buffy's indigeneity, she told Buffy to go looking, and she pointed her in the direction of someone she thought could help. There was one person in town who was indigenous. I don't mean he was an an Indian in his last life or, you know, (laughs) 116th Cherokee. You know, there's a lot of that going around. No, he was Narragansett. His name was Leonard Baird. Leonard Baird was from the Narragansett Nation, and he was Wakefield's postman. But when he wasn't delivering the mail, he was carving or beading or making moccasins at a trading post he owned on the lakeshore. I used to skate across the lake to see him, or I'd ride my bike four miles around the lake to see him. And um, the shop had beautiful regalia on the walls and beads that they were selling. That's where I used to buy my first beads. He was the first person who taught me how to bead. And, he, you know, he didn't chase me away. They were so nice to me. So, you know, I did have that reinforcement in my life, and it was such a precious thing to me. I can relate to this. I think a lot of Indigenous people can. Finding culture wherever we can. And it can take a long time to realize what we've been missing. Here's Buffy again. It was only in adult years when I realized that some Indian people are growing up surrounded by a wonderful, rich culture that is very much alive in a situation of family love that I realized that I did miss something. But as a kid, I didn't know the other side of it, so I didn't miss it. My happiness came from my big toy, the piano, and uh, my friendship came through uh, Leonard Baird, this Indian man I'm talking about. So I didn't have it all bad. (laughs) When I was about three, my parents uh, got a piano, an old broken down thing, you know, and that became my toy. I made up songs. I didn't read music. I just played. I played it. I learned very fast. I did practically nothing but play with the piano, you know, for, you know, every day, every day. It's all I did. I loved it. And she had never had a lesson, and she played like a professional. I don't know know how to describe it, but it was amazing. And she sat down and she could play instantly. I, I I don't understand how that happens, but it does, I guess. And Buffy could play any music and you want. She just could hear it and play it. Just a natural. Just a real natural. Meanwhile, I'd go to school and I would flunk music class because I couldn't read in European notation. 
no matter how I tried. And so I failed music classes, and year after year, you know, I was told, no, you can't be a musician, you can't be an orchestra, you can't be in band. Then I would go home, and I would play fake Tchaikovsky or anything I heard on the radio, and I'd be all smiles. There was no way that you could tell me I, could, I was not a musician. Music was play. It was a friend. A place to get lost in. When she was left alone at home, Buffy would take apart the vacuum cleaner and hold the tubes up to a record player and to her ears. And there's something in that for me, about a kid who wants to listen like that so intently. And I love hearing about what she was listening to. You know, Fats Domino. Elvis Presley turned me around, you know, when he was 19. That was something to see. Miles Davis, you know, jazz and ethnic music from different places. But behind the play, music was an escape for Buffy. She didn't have the words to talk about it yet, about what was happening to her, about how life inside her home was dangerous. Navigating the travel world doesn't have to be complicated. Whether you want to hack your points in miles, figure out where to travel next, or you just need advice on an ethical dilemma. I'm Aisling Green, host of Unpacked by Afar. And in the brand new season, we are unpacking the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry, one conversation at a time. Topics like the sexiness of travel insurance and the perils of quote-unquote bad tourism, and even the secrets to flying with children and not losing your mind in the process. Listen to Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. I had a hard childhood in not fitting in because I just didn't fit in. And I think that wherever I was, I might not have fit in. So I think that it would be a mistake to just grab at the first thought, oh, it was an Indian girl in a white community. Of course, she didn't fit in. There just was no consciousness of indigeneity. But I don't think that's why I felt so isolated. I think I felt isolated just because of domestic abuse. Her brother was a creep. And I don't know if you want to put that in there, but he was a creep. We really didn't know what was going on. She came to my house, and you could see she was upset. She said he was bothering her. She was being abused. And I was so naive back then. I mean, we were just kids, and we didn't know anything. But I remember her. I'll never, ever forget the look on her face. She was terrified that he was bothering her, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what anything to do. I had a brother and an older male relative as well who were just, they were predators. They were predators. Did you ever talk with anyone when you were a child about it? No. No, because I didn't recognize it as abuse. Because in my family, my mom would say, has he been teasing you again? And I'd say, yes. And, you know, I thought that's what teasing was. I thought, oh, he's been te- that's what teasing was, when boys do that to you, when they bully you, when they beat you up, when they push you around, when they, you know, rub you in the dirt, when they hurt you, when they sexualize you, when they touch you, when they do things 
um, you know, nobody ever, I, I never described what was going on. <laughs> In some cases, wouldn't know how. It's just somebody being a bastard to you. It's just somebody picking on you. It's bullying. It's continually being exploited, intimidated, and humiliated by someone else who has who has the right to do that because they're bigger, they're older, you're scared, you're littler, they're a boy, you're a girl. You know, it's it's not new. They taught me how to hide and how to entertain myself while I was hiding. <laughs> so I'm very lucky to be a musician and an artist and to have not had anybody take that away from me because it really, really that playing music and playing art and playing, you know, dress up and imagination. And I was a typical creative kid and that creativity was not taken away from me. And I think that that's really why I lucked out. And I think because of being abused at home, I, I didn't really relate to people that much. I was much more of a loner, but I was a happy loner, so don't feel sorry for me. I did manage to hide from those boys most of the time. Most of the time I did. Um, the times that I didn't are in the past. Buffy wouldn't start speaking out about her abuse until years later. In Wakefield, she stayed quiet, and she found refuge where she could. When I was maybe 16, I got an old guitar and I took it into the woods. And, and I could take my music very privately. And I didn't know how you're supposed to tune a guitar. I tuned a guitar with my own tunings. And I thought I was just doing it wrong, you know? I didn't have anybody to teach me. And so I thought you were supposed to just, you know, tune it like, it like you wanted it to sound great and figure out where to put your fingers so that it you know, do what you wanted it to do. So I wound up making up all these tunings. I thought you were supposed to have a different tuning for every song. I remember when she got her first guitar. That's Peter Dustin. He went to high school with Buffy. She called me Dusty. <laughs> I was Dusty. He still remembers the day he first saw her. For a while, it was Buffy's job at school to go from class to class, collecting attendance slips. And I'm sitting in my class, and Buffy walked through sort of tall and proud and very beautiful. <laughs> and I was a shy guy and I noticed her, <laughs> right? Because she walked in front of the whole class to pick up the attendance slips. So that was my first introduction to Buffy. I mean, I've always called her my first girlfriend. In the stories Peter tells about their relationship, they sound like a regular teenage couple. We went all week to a Elvis Presley double feature at the drive-in. <laughs> the same two movies every night for like a week. <laughs> and Peter was there when Buffy learned to play that old guitar. I remember her building up the callus in the ends of her fingers <laughs> from the strings. <laughs> that guitar, I think, I always thought was kind of a liberating key in her life. It got her out of her sort of insecure self and gave her some power and authority. That guitar was a game changer. It was an instrument that Buffy could take with her whenever or wherever she wanted to go. And that's the next thing she did. She got out. She got accepted to the University of Massachusetts. And she got the hell out of Javix, USA. Oh, it was wonderful. <laughs> it made all the difference in the world to me to get out of town. 
it was like I was free for the first time. I was free from bullies and predators. When Buffy moved away to university, her and Peter kept dating. And Peter straddles this really special time in Buffy's life. It's like he had a front row seat. He was at her first gigs in those college years, when she was playing covers. These were, you know, traditional folk songs. Black is the color of my true love's hair. I remember that very well. Black is the color of my true love's hair. Her lips are rosy fair. I remember her singing a Civil War song called Two Girls Waiting on the Railroad Tracks, Waiting for Their Loves to Come Back. One wore blue and one wore black, waiting for their loves to come back. Take a minute to think about Buffy on campus. She started her freshman year in 1958. The student movement was starting to pick up, nonviolent protests, sit-ins, marches, students rallying behind things like civil rights, speaking out against nuclear testing, the draft, the Vietnam War. And the folk music scene was big on campuses. There was a cultural and musical revolution building, and Buffy was right in the middle of it all. Do you remember performing for people the first time? A little bit. I was performing a little bit, but it wasn't a big deal. Um, uh, there was a, like a folk music club. You could get together with other people and play the guitar. And Taj Mahal and I used to go into the stairwells and play music together. <laughs> Taj Mahal went on to become a famous musician. He's won Grammys and he's still playing shows. And he's still good friends with Buffy. Taj Mahal. Oh, God. Yeah, we were classmates. And um, there was a coffee house off campus. And by the time I was a junior, I had started dropping in and singing my songs at the coffee house off campus. I didn't think of myself as a songwriter or entertainer or anything. I wasn't Buffy St. Marie. I was just a college kid. (laughs) I was just trying to survive math. (laughs) But she was a songwriter. She'd been writing her own music for years. She just hadn't played her songs for anyone. Once she started playing enough so that she could play in public, then there was always conversation about where it was going to take her. Peter sees the change happen right in front of his eyes. It went really from Bev to Buffy. He got to see her become Buffy. And pretty soon she's playing some original material her own songs, now that the Buffalo's Gone shows up in her sets. Can you remember the times that you have held your head high and told all your friends of your Indian claim? Proud good lady and proud good man. And this song is so strategic, so smart. Buffy uses her words carefully. Lyrics like, proud good lady and proud good man. She's learning how to channel her politics into her songs. And she's not pointing at you. She's inviting you in. And once you're in, she starts feeding you the facts. Has a change come about Uncle Sam? Or are you still taking our lands? A treaty forever. Buffy's song was inspired by the proposed building of the Kinzua Dam, a dam that would flood 10,000 acres, about one-third of Seneca territory. The Seneca Nation went to court to fight it, 
but they lost, and the dam went forward, flooding gravesites and homes. I probably don't have to point out how this sounds like it could be happening today. Removal of Indigenous people off of their territories for access to resources is an old story, one that is still going on. The Wet'suwet'en fight against coastal gas link pipeline comes to mind, or land back lane in my community, Six Nations, or the Site C hydroelectric dam in Treaty 8 territory. I could go on. Now That the Buffalo's Gone is one of the first popular Native protest songs. And the song is still so relevant. Now That the Buffalo's Gone was, you know, really trying to make some sense to non-Indian people who could help and to Indian people who needed to get up and yell loud if we were to retain our rights and if we were to reinforce our hearts in order to carry on and to make this generation more uh, viable and more powerful than the last one. I was trying to make sense to people. I was trying to bridge the gap between uh, the problem and the solution, between the reserve and the city, between native culture and the rest of the world's culture. Puffy was more interested in, as she was fully developing and beginning to play in coffee houses and all, she was really much more focused on getting to New York in the big time than she was having a small town, you know, boyfriend. Peter and Buffy split up, but they stayed in touch, writing letters. She had very good handwriting, (laughs) much better than mine. Aside from being cute, these letters offer this really unique window into Buffy's career starting to take off. Well, this one's typewritten. I can read it (laughs) a little better here. (laughs) Dear Dusty, I guess I really owe you an apology for my laxity in writing. Last weekend, out of the 6,000 recognized folk singers on the East Coast, 90 were invited to sing at the Indian Neck Folk Festival in Brantford, Connecticut. Odetta, the Kingston Trio, Pete Seeger, Richard Dyer Bennett, Joan Baez, Bob Gibson, and a whole lot of Buffy's still in university, and she's on the same bill as Pete Seeger, Joan Baez, right in the middle of the folk scene. Musicians right on the cusp of making it big, like really big. No better time to begin than now, I guess. Besides, I'm running out of paper. Hoping to hear from you soon. Buffy. Buffy graduates in 1962 with a degree in philosophy and teaching, which is what she thought she'd end up doing. Teaching. But before she settles into that, into the life she thinks is waiting for her, the road calls. I went directly from college to Greenwich Village just to try my luck at singing. When I arrived, you could go to open mic evenings where you could wait your turn and get up and sing a few songs. Greenwich Village is major for Buffy. She's on the coffeehouse circuit, sharing stages with Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, Carly Simon, Phil Oakes, Neil Young, and a singer named Joni Anderson. She wasn't Joni Mitchell yet. Buffy's star is rising, and she's on the move. But there's a change coming. The coffeehouse scene is shifting to something darker, boozier. But Buffy doesn't drink. She doesn't party. She stays away from all that. But whether she likes it or not, the party's going to come to her. 
That's on the next episode of Buffy. Buffy is written and produced by me, Phelan Johnson, with our showrunner, Zoe Tennant, and our producer, Eunice Kim. Additional producing from Leah Simone Bowen. Yvette Nolan is our story consultant. Editing and sound design by Mira Bertwin-Tonic and Nigel Irwin. Additional story editing by Mira Bertwin-Tonic. Our theme music is by Nigel Irwin. Roshni Nair is our digital producer. Tanya Springer is our senior producer. And Arif Narani is the director of CBC Podcasts. Special thanks to Jeff Turner, Cecil Fernandez, Jason Paris, Austin Pomeroy, Kate Zeman, Keith Hart, Wendy Gillis, Raven Sinclair, Leonard Rose, and to Andrea Warner and Blair Stonechild for their biographies on Buffy. Additional audio in this episode from the Howdy Doody Show and Buffy's songs, Now That the Buffalo's Gone, and My Country, Tis of Thy People, You Are Dying. If you liked what you heard, please consider leaving us a review or a rating on your favorite podcast app. These go a long way in helping new listeners discover our show. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. That was the first episode of Buffy. New episodes drop every Tuesday till July 19th, and you can find it on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.